Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. And welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me is the absolutely marvellous Bob Cummins, all the way from Scotland. Bob, how are you? Hey, I'm not too bad, Tom. Thanks for thanks for having me on. No problems, no problems at all. Bob, uh, you're 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 an interesting character, which is why I decided. Well, asked you on because I feel like I and a lot of listeners can learn from you. So you've had a long career in safety and safety roles. Firstly, where did it start? What was the interest that pushed you down the safety pathway? Yeah, pushed, forced, forced down the safety pathway. Yeah, sometimes I think, I mean, I don't actually like classing myself as a as a safety professional and nothing against safety professionals. I just don't, I've never felt like a safety professional. Mm-hmm. My background has always been construction. Mm-hmm. And even now I'm not actually working directly in construction. Many of our clients are construction based. So I, I started off as what they call a chain lad, which is an engineer, site engineer's assistant. So we hold the dumb end of the tape, you know, <laughs> not the not the end with the figures on. And I did that, you know, for 16, 17, and then had this, engineer that I was working with and and he said well do you want to learn a bit about engineering and I said well yep that's that's kind of why I came into this bit it wasn't just to hold the end, dumb end of the tape and he taught me a fair bit actually it was Tom Tom Newfeld was his name Texas Tom yeah we used to call him he was a, a great character and he trusted me and 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 took me kind of under his wing and taught me a lot of setting out engineering and re- got into it from then then went into a bit of site management and project management. And it was then that I, I started to get a bit kind of frustrated with where things were going. And there was this internal advert came out for a safety manager in the company I was working for. So I thought, oh, well, I mean, I don't like quite like what I'm doing just now. It feels like it's too much kind of bureaucracy and things in this site management side. So I'll throw my hat in the ring on the safety management side and did that. Didn't get the job. 
but got a wooden spoon prize of a secondment. So they said, you're not good enough to get the main job, but would you come and be a, sec- a secondee into the department? And I thought, oh, well, what the heck? And it was great. It really was. It was. I, I, so I went in and I, I was shadowing this safety chap, Mark, and we would travel about the construction sites. And so one minute we're speaking to the, the, the chap on the shovel. The next minute we're in a board meeting speaking to the directors and and everybody in between. And, and I really, really sort of enjoyed that crossover, cross-section of the company, being able to see it from um, you know a, a complete picture. And with my engineering background and site management background, actually having a practical view. And at this point, I hadn't didn't have any safety qualifications at all. And that came later. And this company that I worked with, that's the way they operated. They got their safety people where they could from within the company. And we all had a trade or a, or a kind of engineering background. And then they gave us safety as, as, the, as the addition. They gave us a safety training after that if we liked it. And we were quite a, a formidable team, actually, in, in this company. Very practical. We were charged with helping the sites to deliver their work safely. Um, not to be obstructive, but with the responsibility to, if things were not good, it, it, you know, stop sites and things like that as well, which was always seen, you know, as, as a bit of a failure because you were you were there to build relationships up with the guys, and advise them and and get results that way. And most of the time we did, and it it really was really was great actually. It was very enjoyable. However, round about I don't know maybe two thousand two thousand three legislation or what maybe insurance companies there was a massive increase in the amount of paperwork procedures policies and it was you know more and more just focus on paperwork rather than actually safe delivery of work and I got really despondent about the way safety was going and by this time I was actually a head of safety and director role as well and looking after quality as a, an environment as they like to tag everything on sometimes to, mm. to the person that was looking at that and and left that that kind of employed role if you like and in, in, in safety yeah because it was just it was getting too too much going the wrong way I think safety just it just went that wrong way I don't know what it was like across in Australia that if you had this big increase in kind of paperwork and legislation yeah, absolutely. It, it it's it's yeah. A lot of people will tell you from the ground floor up, and even people in management will tell you they know it's the wrong way, but it's either required because they're not a tier one contractor, and therefore the tier one contractors actually require it, or because someone has advised them that that's there. Or they mistakenly believe that the legislation requires this paperwork, but it seems to be more of we better have it just in case. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the the, the cover the backside stuff. And so yeah, so it was it was it sounds similar. So it was getting, yeah, very it just it just was sucking the life out of real management, you know, not just not just safety management, but real kind of management. And people who were supervisors were becoming more stuck in the office as well as managers as well. Anyway, so cut a long story short, I was working in a senior leadership role for a big client organization in Scotland and met this chap who was using, well, teaching behavioral science and helping us use behavioral science, helping the company I was with use behavioral science to improve forecasting. So nothing to do with health and safety at all. They were actually using it to, for the, for the project managers to improve the way they were planning the jobs and forecasting the work. <clears throat> and we got talking 
And it was around about the time that the words kind of behavioral safety were, were being used in a couple of big programs, Heathrow, the airports were using behavioral safety programs, very much kind of hearts and minds based programs. So the word behavioral safety was out there, but this was behavioral science. So we chatted about, you know, what's the differences and things like that. And he said, well, he wasn't sure because he hadn't looked at behavioral safety, but would he, would, would we have a chat about using behavioral science to improve health and safety? Because it can be used to improve anything. So he did, he put a course together for our, our company and we started delivering, or he started delivering some behavioral science courses to targeted towards improving health and safety in, in the business. And when I went on the course and I was surprised to see that it was, it was actually really quite engineering like, so it's not trying to get into people's heads as such. It's, it's quite mechanical it's 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 about design designing the environments if you like and I, and I really like this because it really kind of reminded me of my engineering days if you like and and quite logical and thought through so so that's when I started to really like it studied it got more involved did some more courses and eventually set up my own business to do that to teach people behavioral science for whatever they want to to use it for and we've been doing that since 2013 so so 10 years this year and most of our work is still in construction because that's where my background is. And most of the work actually tends to be using behavioral science to improve health and safety, because again, that's where my expertise was before, but also this kind of common misunderstanding that it might be behavioral safety, if you like, as well. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, for me, as well as for other people, what's the difference between what you teach through your company's company, SODAC, is it? Yeah, that's right. So that it's short for, so it's been named after where my wife comes from. She's a, she's American and it's, she's from the state of South Dakota. Ah, and Sodak is what they, those guys in, in, in that state have shortened it to, to Sodak. So no, nobody knows that really because South Dakota is not a very big place. So I stole the, stole the name meaningless, but two syllables. So yeah, that's what it is. Fantastic. So what's the difference between what you and Sodak teach and what is thought of as BBS safety? Yeah, so, so yes, BBS, behavioral-based safety, is, it depends It depends who you speak to. There's different understandings of, of what it is. There's very much in America, in the US, BBS is based, a lot of it's based on an observation process. So it's got some behavioral science in it and very much based on observing and giving peer-to-peer -peer feedback. Now, some some of those programs have been very successful when the cultures have been accepting of genuinely receiving feedback in the way it was desired. But if you just try and you know plug in a program to to maybe a culture that's you've not got a generally good relationship between people, then feedback isn't received, and 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 you can get like a skewed view of improvement because you've now got somebody watching someone with a clipboard giving them feedback. I mean, this is a very generalized version of it. And then you get this kind of skewed improvement only while the person's being watched, if you like. Mm, mm. And so that's sometimes it gets it gets a bit of a bad rap, but I have seen it implemented where it has improved or been of a good use when that relationship is good in the company. So when the culture is very mature and you've got it to a stage where feedback can be received. Now, the difference between what we teach and, and that is we still look, to observe people because I don't think you can 
never or should never look at what people are doing. But we definitely don't stand there kind of and, and give feedback specifically about that task. What we teach is more maybe better thought of as behavioral design. So it's using the principles of behavioral science. And, and then one of the main principles of behavioral science is that the behavior of the person, the, the action. So think of behavior as actions rather than attitudes or beliefs. So mm-hmm. the actions of the person, as in the tools they use, the method of access that they use, the, the, the method of doing the job, these actions are outputs of the environment that the person is in. So this is what science tells us, is that the people don't just behave out of nowhere by themselves. It's always in relation to the stuff that's around them. So behavioral design is about then taking that principle and changing the stuff around the person to get a different outcome. So that could be the interactions with between the supervisor and the worker. It could be the interactions between the peers and the worker. It could be the selection of tools and materials. It could be the the, the amount of time or, of course, the task itself. And, and in fact, those kind of six elements, the task, the time, the tools, the materials, the peers, and the supervisor are generally the main elements. There's other things as well, but those are generally the main influencing factors around the worker that if you then change those, the worker's behavior will change. So instead of directly playing with the worker and and getting really frustrated when nothing changes and then just shouting louder, what we do is we teach people to kind of change the stuff around the worker and see the worker's behavior as the output of the environment that the that the worker is in, if you like. So it's yeah more of a behavioral design kind of teaching and an action rather than intervention as such. Yeah, yeah. I... I... Would that be very similar to instead of just examining behavior or actions, but to in isolation to actually using the conditions and context of the work and how it takes place more as a holistic measure of why behavior actions actually occur? Yeah, so the 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 setting always has to be taken into context if you like so so context is vital in trying to understanding trying to understand why behavior occurs without that that context you really have got nothing to go to so if you just if if an incident happens and you just focus solely on the individual you're likely to miss all the cues and points that were either side of the individual when the incident happened and the the problem is that the in, the individual that's had the incident is such a loud signal though that it draws us towards them and the other things of disappeared you know the context has, has, has virtually disappeared and all we've been left with is the incident and the injury which is why it's why many people go for the individual as the kind of initial area of investigation rather than where they're working if you like so we're kind of steered towards going to the wrong area in initially and, and yet and it takes a, a fair bit of kind of stepping back and and pausing to actually go no that there's, there's no way that worker intended to injure themselves. Okay, so, mm. so there's a couple of things you can then take. The, the, the worker, most people come to work to do a good job and to get the job done, yeah. and, and nobody's coming to work to get injured. So from those premises, then they didn't expect to get the outcome they got, right? They were expecting to get the work done for you, and they came to work to do a good job, right? So therefore, it's not, directly about changing mindset as such so so the kind of programs that go let's remind people that it's that they've got families to go home to <laughs> yeah. are kind of missing the point of the worker 
did not want to go to the home to the family safe anyway. That's you know, right. so it's and 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 I'm not saying that we that we shouldn't show compassion. We definitely should, and we definitely should have some really genuine discussions with those people that are most at risk about why it's a good idea to do the right thing, right? But in most cases, they know that it's a good idea to do the right thing, but it's either social pressure or it's that they don't have enough time or they've not got the right tools or equipment. But often it's also the interaction between that supervisor and the worker. The 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 small, if you like, team that they're in, if they are working in a team, is that's where the answers are. It's 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 between the supervisor and the peers. It's either side of the worker is where you have to look. That worker's behavior is just the output of that little system that they're in, if you like. Yeah, I agree. With I don't you. know if that answers your question there. No, that's great. That's great. Would you would you say that the the frontline supervisor has probably the most influence on the safety in their area rather than higher level safety policies and procedures which are imposed from the top? Yes. However, you know, if you think about the worker being a kind of product of the environment that they're in, then so is that supervisor. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so you could there's there's like many overlapping environments right the way till you get to the director. So that CEO or, or director or senior leader, yes, has less. So and this isn't just isn't just my opinion. There's scientific studies that show this as well. There was a study by Larkin and Larkin that well they pulled together the research around this and created a nice easy paper to read that showed that the the worker pays most attention to the supervisor. Supervisor has most influence over the worker. Who has most influence over the supervisor? Well, I mean, influence goes up the way as well, but it'll be the supervisor's supervisor. Hmm. So if the, you know, when you're looking at this and trying to activate the supervisor, then the place to activate them is, well, who do they pay attention to? And in in most cases, because the organization is structured such, it'll be their boss, you know, and then who do they pay attention to, to activate them? Will it be their boss and their boss? And then you can, you know, you, that's why you, you still need this top down support too. And I think what I've seen in many construction companies though, is that there's a break often in this, in this organizational line where the, the CEO does genuinely believe that safety is important in many organizations Now, whether their actions tell the same as well or not is a different story, but let's just, let's just say they do, but there may be then a break somewhere down that kind of influence chain for want of a better word. And the I think some of this break is because of the bureaucracy and the amount of procedures and paperwork with there's office work that goes on. And this is, you know, this is construction, but I think it's also true in factories and, and probably mining as well, in that there's office stuff that goes on and there's all the reporting and, and board meetings and, and figures and everything. And then there's getting the work done. Mm-hmm. And often the site can be almost left to get the work done with obviously they're getting directed, but there's a break in that support. There's a break in that relationship between a true genuine relationship between then the office and the site that then the site guys are doing their best to get the work done in the timescales they've been given with the expectations they've been given with the tools they've been given, the materials they've been given with the culture they've been given. And then that's the best they can do that's playing out on site. If you like yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Speaking of culture, what's your take on safety culture? What if you were someone quizzed you and said, 
What is Bob Cummins' def- definition of safety culture? What would it be? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't have one, but I would say that it's. So I, I did a talk once called the safety fallacy, and that was there's there's a few lines in there that basically say you you, you can't really have a a separate safety strategy. So you could maybe see that as you can't really have a separate separate safety culture. That That's where I'm saying you've got a business culture, a company culture, mm. and then you've got a culture, that business culture is within an industry culture. And so construction company operates, has a culture that operates within an industry culture as well. And that that's the way of doing work. It, you know, it's, it's the way that things are, that clients make, companies bid for work it's the way that governments release work it's the way that there's many many facets that are creating that culture safety isn't health and safety isn't output so that there was this there was this chap very experienced director he was director of the olympic build in london when we had the olympic games and he was at a, doing a talk and he said you can't manage safety and i'm like what the hell does he mean you can't manage safety? <laughs> I used to be a safety manager, you know. And I said I spoke to him afterwards. His name was Ian Galloway, Sir Sir Ian Galloway. And uh, what do you mean you can't manage safety? He says you can't manage safety directly, but you can manage the conditions in which safety occur. And I'm like, okay. So I thought I had to think about this for a while, but I, I think I eventually got there. And, and what he was saying is that safety is an output. Safety is an output of correct task management and execution. So therefore that puts it squarely back into project management rather than it being a safety problem. So that means if safety is an output of successful project management, then that successful project management is where you have to focus on. And again, getting the guys, the right guys, the right tools, the right task, the right time, the right materials, the right supervisor. That's all stuff to get everything done. Quality is an output, safety is an output, money is an output of all those things being done right or wrong course if it's the wrong side so that so i reckon then that then translate to safety culture you can't have a separate safety culture you've got just the culture of the organization from which is influenced by the leaders of course but influenced by everybody else but also massively influenced by the industry now i think there's wiggle room within that industry so you can have some companies that are better but they're still constrained by that industry i think and if we really want to improve things then we have to look at how the industry works, not just the individual companies. Yeah, yeah. Construction, construction. A lot of construction workers go from contract to contract. Is that still correct? Yeah, yeah. And I'd also suggest that it's not just in construction, but I'd also suggest that the tenure of most CEOs of companies is usually counted these days in a number of years. Do you think that we've hit a a basic problem, which is even from the very top, when CEOs are only in a position or in an organisation for a number of years, that they're looking ahead to the future, just pretty much like everyone else would, and they're realising their chances of getting a quality opportunity may relate back to pure figures which indicate profit, how much we've able to increase the company's net worth, et cetera, which is done on a short term. Do you think that the way 
that sort of situation has evolved in, I don't know, in the last probably 50 years has led to perhaps many people in the top going, why should I? Why should I rock the boat and genuinely change the safety systems, the safety culture, the environment at this workplace? Why shouldn't I just push the people harder and harder for productivity? Because in the long term, well, in the medium term at least, it's in my benefit. It's in my best interest if I do that. There is nothing in there as a bonus for me to protect my people. Yeah, it's 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 difficult, isn't it? The contingencies that are set up to to drive us to be short term thinking. I mean, which of there's many, not just not just in organisations, mm. but I think it's it's actually that is at the core of many of the problems with safety, with health, with with with, that, with outside work as well. You know, as in mm. so short-term benefit over long-term gain we talk a lot when we're we're with our clients about delayed gratification versus instant gratification and really when you look at it the the long-term success tends to always follow delayed gratification so whether that's in individual training for sports activities whether it's in sports teams whether it's in you know, studying, whether it's in being successful in your career, it tends to follow the rule of a, a slightly kind of negative present for a positive future, as in, you know, eating the salads rather than the donuts sort of thing. Yeah. So, however, there's more reward in the short term. You know, then this is, we're biologically programmed, evolutionarily programmed to maximize now, you know, to maximize today and there only is today and it's thought that we're you know only species that can forecast into the future but we're still got this programming for instant gratification and to get what we can when we get it that's our kind of base default programming is what they believe and those reactions served us really well because that's what got us here you know we're we're the end product of everybody that survived you know, that sounds obvious, but we are. We're everybody that survived and what helped them survive was acting quickly in the moment and maximizing their benefits in the moment. So this is this is really tricky, but now because now we've got to a state where in the world where we know that actually that's detrimental. It's detrimental for you know the environment, it's detrimental for safety, you know, whether it's just taking shortcuts. And so that plays out to into maximizing shareholder value. So if those contingencies aren't are aligned to delivering and putting pressure on the CEO to deliver a maximum returns, then that will massively shape the culture of the business. And it would take a CEO of a lot of strength to resist that kind of pressure if that was the purpose of his or her organization was to deliver those results to the shareholders. Now, there's there's a move, there seems to be a move in, in, in Scotland and the UK so I'm, I'm doing a bit of studying at the moment and part of the one of the modules was on re- responsible leadership and it's a direct push against this short-term benefit of maximizing shares in that that's got us where we are just now as a as a world as a global economy and therefore something different is needed so you know so pushing back against the greed the individual greed and so there's a lot of work being done by a lot of researchers into why it's that's dangerous in many ways and why millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Delayed gratification and investing and and pushing back against the short-term output or outturn is is a better option, I feel like. So yeah, I think actually instant gratification and delayed gratification is is probably that it's not explored enough in health and safety, actually, right the way down the road. You know, with the, if you if you tell the supervisor that they've got a deadline of only two days, but he needs or she needs three, then they're going to try and get it in two days as a it's a form of instant gratification. It's a form of instant that many safety practices take extra effort you know they do it takes extra effort to 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 work safely therefore our base programming will often lead to shortcuts taken and you have to counteract that then with with reinforcement and acknowledgement from the supervisor so the supervisors we should be actually teaching this kind of stuff to supervisors as well as teaching them how to be local leaders and having a, a, a relationship with the with the workers, we should be teaching them that on default, there's a good chance that the worker will cut corners because that's how they're built. Therefore, they have to look out for that and counteract that with a lot of kind of acknowledgement for when they do go that extra hurdle, that extra mile, in order to get that happening more often, to condition them to take the longer route rather than that shorter route. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I even think it... it it escalates right up into politics where the leaders of our political parties look at three to four year terms. So we can't actually make those unpopular decisions, which might be in the best interest of the community and even in safety legislation. Why would why would we try and rock the boat, even though it's a good outcome, if it's going to take 10 years and we may be well and truly gone out of office in three years? Why would we do it? It's 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 an interesting thing. I see health and safety advisors in Australia, particularly in in heavy industries, where sometimes people are on six month contracts. And you've got to ask yourself: if you're a safety advisor and you're on a six month contract, where is the benefit to 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 try and change the culture? Yeah, I, uh, with our clients, the the ones that have got that tend to be smaller and have a, a larger number of long-term staff and workers, it's easier to help them change. Yep. So the, the clients that have got, you know, people just coming in for, for a day even or for a week in, in some trades, it's it's a lot more difficult. Mm. Not impossible, but it's a lot more difficult because you're you're when you when you've got the opportunity to work with someone day in day in day in day in, you can you can shape them and lead them and 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 mold them into 
you know, what you want as that company. You can invest in them. You can make them feel as though they're invested in, which is massively important as well. When they're just flitting between company and company, you, you haven't got that opportunity to invest time time in them as well. So no, it is that kind of peripatetic worker and the the smaller companies and and sorry, the 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 larger companies with with more moving parts are actually more difficult to to get to change, to help mm. to change. In Australia, in particular in the construction industry, we have a not very good, let's say, high rates of young males, 18 to 24, who for some reason commit suicide. It's very high in the, in the construction industry. Having worked a lot in the construction industry yourself, firstly, is it the same in Scotland? And secondly, can you understand why people would be more prone to self-harm in the construction industry than other industries yeah so it's it is it is a problem there's not so much not so many statistics in in scotland specifically but in the uk there's statistics are pointing towards it being a problem as well and it's mostly it seems to be between or or, or those in the kind of lower paid roles as well rather and lower skilled so mm-hmm. the more skills they have the more yeah the, the less likely, not entirely unlikely, but less likely and, and less skills. And there's this, yeah, there's this trend in, that in construction, it's more prevalent than in other industries. That That's actually what I'm doing it in, in my studies is a, a, a DBA, a doctorate on suicide in construction is going to be my thesis. So I'm just moving into that element now, actually, where it's going to be the, the, the two years of research. So I've done two years prior to this and then we're just formulating the plan the, the question as it were the and what we're looking at just now is is the uh, what is this link because it's it's not you know and, and and you know obviously researching this i have read a lot about the stuff in 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 australia a lot about the programs as well and these programs have been really good to raise awareness but they're not tackling they don't appear to be tackling what might the cause be you know because they're they're coming at the end if you like and they're there to help and support, and that's been really good, and and, and it has helped, and, and especially make it something that can be talked about. We wouldn't be talking about it just now if it wasn't for these kind of programs. However, the causal elements are so potentially complex that it's difficult to see, and there's not many studies have been done in, in that yet. There's, there's a few, but not many. Some people theorize that it's it's those that are coming into construction and those jobs are already at risk from suicide, and and the consensus on suicide tends to be that it's sociological pressures, societal pressures, mm-hmm. uh, rather that, that that play on people, and these can be exacerbated then with also a lack of job security, high high paid one minute and then nothing the next minute. So mm-hmm. again, those workers that maybe shift about the place, a sense of loneliness from from working away from home, away from family, the stress that that can put on relationships, and then relationships breaking down the connection potentially between drinking and gambling while working away from home. And and so you've almost got this potentially, and again, the, the, the research isn't fully in yet and, and none of my own, but you've potentially got this perfect storm that then for some, it exacerbates the possibility that suicide might occur. So you might have somebody that's already in an at-risk group coming into construction and made more likely to because of the circumstances around construction so it's it looks like it's an industry problem you know it's not an individual problem Mm -hmm. it's an industry 
mini societal problem maybe you know in in terms of that's the construction stream that's created and then putting pressures on these people and and the way they're treated i was actually speaking to someone at the at the weekend air conditioning engineer and he's left the industry because of the bullying that he was he was suffering and he's he's like he's 30 i think or thereabouts he's not a young lad mm-hmm. and he just was fed up he'd left it once he went back in try it again and it was just just awful he says and he's he's right time for a career change before he kills himself that was his words and it's it's really it is really shocking and men are more likely and it's a male dominated industry of course as well men are more less likely to seek help as well so we've still got all that kind of again kind of perfect storm stuff in there so it is a really interesting thing there's, there's programs here linked to the programs that were done in Australia mm-hmm. as well a lot of emphasis on mental health first aiders but again it's it's, it's not enough it, it, you know in being devil's advocate it almost lets companies off the hook in mm-hmm. changing so if if it's something to do with the way construction happens then something needs to change in the way construction happens not just train more mental health first aiders and that lets senior management off the hook in the way that they operate their companies you know it's it's literally is just sticking plaster so that's the there's a danger there that we believe we're doing something that's more effective than it actually is it's it's helped but it's definitely not helping enough yeah it doesn't seem to address the underlying conditions that have led to that situation uh, mental health first aiders i had someone talk to me not so long ago and they said that they're basically just a signpost to recognize there might be someone in distress and, and point them to the wreck that that's all they do i still have i whilst i support eap programs and see that they can be some benefit my firm thoughts are you shouldn't have to rely on EAP to keep your workers safe at work from some of the risks that they face. So we start to look at what's causing them to require this service. I've got even less time for throwing resilience training on its own at workers and just basically telling them to to toughen up. I don't think that actually helps anyone. But I then I'm sorry if that offends people in the resilience training industry, but I think let's fix the conditions, then let's give the resilience training rather than yeah. And and again, those those some of the, the those programs have their place for sure, you know. And it's the you know the strap line, it's 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 okay not to be okay. I I don't actually agree with that. It's it's not okay to not be okay, you know. So if you're not okay, there is a there is a and again, sorry if this offends, there is a responsibility on that person to to go and seek help as well it's it's not okay to remain not okay mm. uh, so you know there is a there is a bit of work required in all areas on all fronts and all people the I've, I've seen some companies have targets for you know the amount of mental health first aiders that they've got and have that as one of their success criteria. and it's just again it's the wrong wrong way of looking at it it's it's the equivalent of in if we were talking about injuries and safety, it's equivalent of just having a hospital on every construction site just to patch people up and put them back in rather than actually having handrails, you know? Yeah. That's what we've got just now rather than actually looking at... And listen, there are some companies that are definitely investing in their employees. And again, back to that, even that delayed gratification, insta-gratification conversation, those companies that tend to have longer-term serving employees that have been given, you know, that have been looked after, that have been given good kit, 
to work in, that have been given lots of support, that are paid decent, you know, that are working close to their families, that, is, that are treated well, are less likely to commit suicide. You know, they, they feel more part of the areas, that more part of the company, more part of the society that they're in there. So that there's got to be some change in that, but the, the industry drives quick results. You know, clients often look for quick results. The way jobs are tended for is still often the lowest amount. That All that doesn't help, all that compounds. Okay. As a safety manager, well, let's be honest, in the safety industry, safety profession, whatever you want to call it, there seems to be the obsession of having to measure things, having to count things. And as a safety manager, how would, or even now, as, as, as an intelligent human being, how would you measure safety on a site or in a business? Ah, good question. I mean, yeah, we, we, we all like data, don't we? And especially if you're if you're a senior manager or, or leader and, and, and you can't even have time to get on site, you want those numbers put in front of you until they're improving or, or whatever. That I, I mean, we, we use a measure to, to measure the output on a site. So it's, it's, it's a very quick and dirty measure. And, and it's, it's basically our, you, we, we go out and site, we have a look at the workers and what they're doing. And we say, okay, we're with somebody that knows, and we know a fair bit ourselves because of our background about what's compliant, what isn't. And we just look at say a bunch of 10 people working and we say, right, how many are you happy with about what they're doing and how many are you not happy with? As in how many people are doing it right? How many people are doing it not, not right? Do that enough, you know, just a very quick snapshot like that, and you get an understanding of what is what the environment is supporting in terms of kind of rule following or 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 the opposite. It's not everything, but it's a good kind of quick barometer of what's being allowed to happen. So what I mean by that is often when we just measure safety incidents, when we just measure injuries or incidents. We're, and we judge our performance on that. We're judging it on things that were already going on that just hadn't turned into incidents yet. So there's, there's always a first time for a behavior. But say that the, I don't know, say that somebody got something in their eye and they, were, they weren't wearing their light eye protection. That wasn't, most probably that wasn't the first day they didn't wear their light eye protection. Mm. So, so the signal was there and... Nobody was paying attention to it because it wasn't a loud enough signal, as in the guy hadn't didn't have the eye injury. However, the behavior of working without light eye protection was being allowed to happen by the organization day in, day out before the injury occurred. So one of the one of the critical things is to is to understand that there's stuff going on right now, even as we speak or as you're listening to this, that is that is happening, that is being allowed to happen that's slightly against the rules or massively against the rules. But we're, we're we're not paying attention to that because the noise isn't big enough. So the the measures that that we use looks at these categories of people and says, well, how many are doing stuff that are right? How many are doing stuff that are not right? And then using that to kind of amplify back as a mirror to the leaders and to the even to the supervisors of this is the amount of people that are at risk at this time. And they, that, that's where your next instance come from. This is, di- and it's completely different from near misses because you're actually looking at the 
a very, very quick and often judgment of how many people are doing stuff right and doing stuff wrong. Now, you can do this every level up in the organization. Don't just focus on the workers. In the office, how many people are turning up to meetings on time? How many people aren't? How many meetings are finished on time? How many aren't? How many people are doing their actions in, that they said they were going to do? How many aren't? Whatever the kind of equivalent kind of behaviors are that make the company run well up in that management sphere, what is meant to happen versus what isn't happening? And then before the before it turns into something you can't control, if you like. That's a pretty good. Again, it's not everything. Definitely not everything. There's other measures out there as well. But it's one that we find that's most often missed because you can miss it as in because you can ignore it. You know, it's not noisy enough. Oh, it doesn't matter if if I if I I've done my actions in the meeting. It doesn't matter that everybody else hasn't done. Well, it, actually, it does. You know, it does matter that everybody else hasn't done theirs. It does matter that three people out of the seven have turned up late to the meeting, you know, because that's now extra time that we've got to spend and we'll miss and calculate across that whole company. Then that's a lot of hours. It does matter that the guy's not wearing his light eye protection because that's what you've asked him to do. And if he's, if you've asked him to do something and you're not helping him do that, then the next thing could be that he doesn't clip on when he's meant Mm. to clip on because he sees that you don't take safety seriously because you're allowing him to work without light eye protection, you know, so it can translate into lots of many things there as well. Good, good. Always taught and always told, and I believe it's good practice, that we should investigate incidents, accidents, near misses, etc. And we should learn from them to prevent similar types of incidents occurring, investigate the underlying conditions and, and work out why things actually happen. And sometimes this is this is called organizational learning. Do you think organizations actually learn, or do you think it's individuals within organizations that learn well i guess yeah the it has to at some point come down to the individual doesn't it because the organization has individuals in it. It, it but then i guess you could say and what would what would it look like if an organization had learned and is that similar to what it would look like if an individual had learned so if an ind- if an individual has learned then that suggests that they've changed their actions based on some new information uh, and then so as an organization organization learned that means they changed the way of operating based on new information so this now this is this might be interesting then so the individual might have learned so so we're very good at learning from our own behaviors mm-hmm. in most cases you know you, you you learn that fires are hot you know often through through not believing that they're being told and often you know that sticking your finger on the cigarette lighter you know Mm. have you ever done that Tom? oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely you're told that it's hot but you just have to check yourself and and then but you don't you don't do it second time usually you know once is enough we're not very good at learning through other people's stories though but we are good at learning through being if you like conditioned so wait hang on where was i going with this the organization right so if, if people are learning then they if they've learned, by definition, they've changed their behaviours, I think. Now, I think maybe the organisation then expects things to change just by an individual learning rather than changing the way they operate. So if they, if the organisation was truly to learn, they would change the way they operate. Mm. And I think there's less evidence of that. So that, because that would take, oh, maybe we shouldn't bid for that kind of work anymore. 
Maybe we shouldn't work for that client anymore. Maybe we shouldn't employ that subcontractor anymore. You know, the, and, and then taking that specific decision to change the way they operate. Whereas I don't see as much evidence of that. What I see is more evidence of, oh, we just have to get the individual to change. And, and they're a product of the way the company's operating. They're behaving that way because of the subcontractor, because of the client, because of the type of work that they're doing. So actually, I think that's that's a really good point that's probably worth a lot more investigation. And that's, yeah, I think the organizations just expect the individuals to change, but don't change the way they're operating. And therefore, change isn't that long lasting because the environment that the workers in is still more or less the same. Yeah, that's that's exactly where, where I think too. Unless we change as a result of learning the way the organization actually operates, the context, the conditions that they give to their workers, then the individuals who've learned will eventually move on. They'll go somewhere else. And then you go, well, now we're back to square one where we don't have that underlying experience or learning from experience, and we can actually regress backwards. I'm thinking particularly for senior management or even safety leaders. It just takes, to me, if things don't change, one person, one senior person who's guiding the organisation, and we go backwards, and we've learned nothing. Someone said to me, what's the the length of time of organisational learning? And I go... What's the generation? Well, maybe 10 years, if that, because then we lose our people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I think then this is why when you see safety programs that just target the at-risk worker, there may may be a short-term improvement, but it's not Mm long-term because that worker is still working in in an organisation that supported the initial behaviours that, the sheep dip or whatever targeted program is trying to change. So yes, you make a, a quick fix. And it's it, it, this links exactly into the mental health aid, mental health first aid stuff as well and everything else we've been speaking about. You can't just it's a form of blame to to just expect the worker to change without changing the stuff around them. You know, it's that's that you have to do it across the whole business and then change the way it's operating. But then you've still got this paradox of that company still operating within the industry. Mm. You know, mm. so at some point it has to come back down to that is that's where the biggest change will be is when the industry starts to then change. Now, what does that mean? It's not just lobbying organ- safety organizations. It's actually probably something to do with the way money flows because that's the way the organizations are working. So clients and politics and policies and yeah, those kind of things. Isn't it, isn't it a danger, particularly in construction industry, that we have the, uh, the race to the bottom in terms of costs and safety so that, you know, the cheapest bidders get the, the, the contracts but they haven't really perhaps invested in safety systems that actually protect people? Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there's certainly, I mean, there's definitely still that pressure. There's, I think it's getting better. We've got... The specific programs that we've got in the UK that try and remove that pressure and specific ways of tendering for work and bidding work and scoring bids that are more fair, not just based on money, they're based on the safety elements, based on the quality and leadership environment stuff as well. And maybe some improvements still to be made, but there's definitely been improvements made that it's not just 
the, the bottom cost. However, there's still companies that are doing that. And so if you're an individual and you're fortunate enough to work for a company who who doesn't just go for the employ the bottom, you know, that race for the bottom, then you're you're probably likely to be more safe. You know, you're probably likely not to get injured. Whereas if you're unfortunate to work for still in the kind of sectors where the race to the bottom is, the, the one that's chosen, the lowest price, quickest bid or quickest program, then you're probably more likely. There's probably some correlation there. It would be an interesting exercise to do around yeah the, your likelihood of either poor mental health or or injury or ill health is that correlated to working in the sectors of the construction that are still more like that race to the bottom element or are you better to kind of go to these now that that then becomes really unfair obviously to to the workers and yeah. and and yeah and split society yeah yeah all right Bob Sodak, where do you operate? Whereabouts do you, you operate? So we're we're based just outside Edinburgh in in Scotland, but we operate across the UK, in the States, and a bit in Canada as well, a bit in Ireland, and a bit in Europe. Never done anything across across your way. It is a little bit far just to jump on a plane for a couple of days' work. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, but you know, in in team terms of remote working, and we've, we we definitely like COVID's helped us do some online stuff as well. But yeah, we we get about. We're not big. We're just a nice small company, five five folk at any any one time. That fluctuates a wee bit around that, and we we kind of like keeping it that way. And we work with a, a a couple guys in the states as well that help deliver work. And we're off there in September actually to the Appalachian State University to do a, a conference with a couple of friends um, across there. So that should be good too. But yeah, we've got a couple of connections in 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 your neck of the woods or Australia certainly as well. And there's very there's been a lot, I think, similarities in, in the way safety has been driven, actually, in the UK and Australia recently as well, with just looking at how can we do it, not using the cliche of how can we do it differently, not, mm-hmm. not getting to those debates, but, you know, the, <laughs> the, just the, it's, it's good to be questioning the way we've done it and in, in the past and actually building in what worked in the past, which met much of the traditional safety is is still spot on it's just the way it's always been it's the way it's been delivered that fails you know mm. if you take the bare tenets of what makes doing a task safer then nobody could argue with that it's just then how do we get that to happen more often is then where the kind of nuances happen i think on where the different opinions lie excellent excellent bob our time's coming to an end it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show thank you so much for giving up your time but for now, we'll have to call it quits. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for inviting me on and let me waffle away. Hopefully that's <laughs> that's been good. But no, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week.